0: Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another episode of Chatter in the Skull. And today, we are going to have another geopolitics-themed episode for I Have Geopolitics on the Brain, and obviously, what's on the brain comes out here. (laughs) I've had one country specifically on mind. It's a country we've talked about before. Well, I guess it's two countries, and those countries are, of course, China and the United States, And that is the increasing chatter, if you will, over whether or not war between these two countries is inevitable. So I would like to explore that a little bit, whether or not war between the United States and China is inevitable. And if it is, what would that look like? What could that look like? Maybe we can draw a very outlined sketch of what a conflict between the united states and china would actually look like if the the cold war quote unquote between the two were to become hot so let's start this episode off with the prediction which started this conversation off for a lot of people in the first place and that is a prediction by one mike minahan a four-star general of the u.s air force i believe but in any case this comes from Time Magazine, U.S. General Prediction of War with China in 2025 Risks Turning Worst Fears into Reality And this is a little bit older, this is from January 28th, I believe January 31st So it starts off with the typical conversation of Thucydides Trap and This is probably well known at this point but to outline, basically, it is this idea that whatever the rising political power is, is destined to come into conflict with the dominant political power, and this will result in some sort of war or conflict to figure out who is truly the dominant power. And that's basically what Thucydides' Trap is, and it's, it's referencing the Peloponnesian War, which is the war between the Athenians and Spartans, which basically destroyed the core of ancient Greece. That's what the city's trap is. It's gotten a lot of play recently, and particularly when talking about the United States and China. Endorsers point to a resurgent nationalism considered by military buildups and an increasingly bellicose rhetoric on both sides, arguably the most worrying of which has emerged on Friday, when US four star General Mike Minahan warned his troops of China my gut tells me that we will fight in 2025. The Pentagon says that Minahan's comments are not representative of the department's view on China. Okay, obviously. I hope I'm wrong, said Minahan, who heads the Air Force Air Mobility Command, wrote in an internal memo which was, cir- which was circulated on social media. Okay, so this guy didn't even say it publicly. Someone leaked it and sent it out there. In any case, it was circulated on social media to the leadership of its 110,000 members. Okay, sorry. This is weirdly written, in my opinion, which is strange. I think at times <laughs> have a little bit better writing. So Minahan explains that the Chinese president secured his third term and set his war council in October of 2022. Taiwan's presidential elections are in 2024 and will offer Xi a reason. The United States presidential elections are in 2024, and this will offer Xi a distracted America. The subject of the memo is February 2023 orders in preparation for the next fight. Aminahan goes on to direct his troops to undergo a monthly progression of readiness, including ordering personnel to consider their personal affairs and to fire a clip into a 7-meter target with full understanding that unrepentant lethality matters the most, aim for the head. The sensational remarks have provoked consternation on both sides of the Pacific. All these things... That you say when you're going to get ready to go to combat, retired U.S. General, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel L. Davis tells the time. Either he knows something that we don't or he's just really trying to get everybody fired up. But I can tell you for sure it's very out of the ordinary. The Pentagon's press secretary, Brigadier General Patrick Ryder, meanwhile, said in the statement that China is the pacing challenge for the Department of Defense. And our focus remains on working hard alongside our allies and partners to preserve peaceful free trade. Okay, so that is, that is fun. For fun, I looked up this guy. I looked up old Mike here. And just, just look at him, he's a beauty. You can tell Mike's a straight shooter with a look like that. In any case, I don't know why, this guy, oh, for just this shot, he reminds me of an actor. And why can't I put it in my head what actor he reminds me of? But in any case, so this is old Mike. I just wanted to check him out. In any case, so that's old Mike, and that's his prediction. And this has, like I said, generated a lot of controversy, a lot of conversation, and including a video by a YouTuber who I follow, and I think a lot of you guys, if you've watched this channel, you probably follow him as well, or at least you should. That is, of course, the Caspian Report, which is, I think, the biggest, if not, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest YouTube channel out there Talk about geopolitics, a good resource, interesting video anyway. He did a video talking about this prediction and if war between China and the United States was coming in 2025, is that really happening? And he came to the conclusion that basically that no, the general is a little bit provocative in his statements. He's a little bit shooting off the cuff. However, war with China looked very likely in his estimation, which I agree, he just said it's gonna happen later in time. It's gonna happen at a later period in time. It's just not gonna happen in the next two years. In any case, it was a really fascinating video. He does really great content in general. And this video in particular got me thinking, well, is this war inevitable? Is there any way of really avoiding the storm clouds in the distance, as he put it? I suppose I should move myself to the other side so you could actually see the title of the video that I'm referencing. In any case, so basically the Caspian Report, or Siobhan from the Caspian Report, predicts that, yes, war with China and the United States is effectively inevitable given current trends and given the direction that things are going. And then Mike Minahan, the general that kind of started this whole conversation, basically said, yes, it's inevitable. In fact, it's so inevitable that it's happening right around the corner, so get ready for it. And overall, this is a great video, but I think Shervan misses a couple actually pretty astute points that Mike Minahan brings up in his memo or what have you. And that is the fact that 2024 will see both elections in Taiwan and in the United States, which could herald political shifts in both countries, more likely in the United States. We will do a very brief examination of Taiwanese politics. In this episode i do think that pointing to those two events is pretty astute by the general because well i don't think that necessarily china is going to 100 attack in 2025 i do think they will be looking at that year very keenly it will be i think a very pivotal year in chinese calculation because i do think that in 2024 it's going to be a messy election guys 2020 was probably the messiest election of my lifetime and i I don't have high hopes for 2024 who the hell knows what could happen between these next two years but it's very possible that some major political disruption happens after the 2024 election or during the 2024 election and china can use whatever political disruption this is to actually launch and attack, because unlike in 2020, they perceived that they simply didn't have the capability to do such an operation. I think that they probably perceived correctly. In fact, I highly doubt that they'll even have such capabilities, but it just may offer them a window. I'm not saying that it's inevitable, but I do think the elections in 2024 and their outcomes could definitely open a window for China, depending on what happens. And i think if that window opens they will climb through it gleefully so what not only that that this time in 2025 if the war in ukraine is still going on which i think is a high likelihood that it will be it will mark the third anniversary of the russo-ukraine war and i do think that particularly if the war will have ground on for that long you may start to see a more war weary NATO, which China might actually try and exploit. And so why are people really worried about a potential war between China and the United States? What would be the causes belly? How would it emerge? What would its outcomes be? That sort of thing. So let's talk about that a little bit. And the main reason why we see the grinding of China and the United States up against one another is because China is not satisfied in being beholden to the United States to secure its economic empire. In some ways, it's actually similar to the Japanese empire of World War II. They're in a similar position where they have a A lot of industry that they want to fuel and produce goods but they don't have the resources within their country that they need to actually produce said goods so they have to import it all so they're beholden on the world trade system essentially to import all these goods to continue to function and this position is untenable for the communist party of china They do not want to be beholden to the Americans for their economic prosperity and security. They don't want to be beholden to other powers and be weak to other powers who may seek to cut off their access to oil and energy because as we talked about in our Why China is Screwed episode, it would be an exceedingly easy thing to do. Just a quick recap here. The vulnerability is, is that China... Gets almost all of its, and by almost all, I'd see roughly 75% of its energy imported through here, through the Straits of Malacca, up through Singapore, and then, yeah, it can go into Hong Kong, but most of it goes all the way up into Shanghai, up here. So, any power with a large enough navy and missiles that can reach a long enough distance has the theoretical capacity to shut down 75% of Chinese oil overnight. And while China is increasingly turning to places like Russia and other states in Central Asia, which are energy rich, that is not going to be enough to cover their current needs. They're still going to need to import a vast quantity of oil and energy. The issue for the CCP is the fact that it doesn't matter if you have a military of a million men with thousands of tanks and thousands of aircraft and an advanced Navy when the fact of the matter is you're not getting enough oil to fuel all of that it's gonna to grind to a hole pretty quickly and effectively be useless this, so this is why naval expansion has been such a core priority for the Chinese military and the Chinese government They've undergone over the past two decades a rapid naval expansion to become the second largest navy in the world and are on track to even become the largest navy as per ship tonnage in the near future. Plus, China has a pretty long history of getting fucked with by countries with larger navies. Namely, Japan and Britain come immediately to the top of my head. And if the United States wanted to, they could easily mess with China in a similar fashion with their navy. So this lack of naval supremacy has definitely left a scar on the Chinese government. So even though right now it seems like America has absolutely no interest in shutting off the spigot or trying to shut off the spigot to China, so to speak, the fact that they could and the devastating consequences that that would entail definitely are a source of concern for China. It makes sense that any country would not be comfortable with this potential state of affairs, this idea that another country, if they wanted to, could just turn off the taps and you'd be effectively screwed. The United States didn't like that in the 1970s when Richard Nixon was basically telling the OPEC nations I'm going to invade your asses if you don't turn the taps on. China, in a similar fashion, could be forced to take extreme measures if another country were to turn the taps off on them. And if that other country is a very powerful one like the United States, things are going to escalate quickly. And it's one thing to be in a position where you are beholden to another country in that way when they're either A, friends, or B, In the united states case significantly more powerful militarily it's a whole nother type of scenario when that other country is more powerful than you and has more friends than you and that's the thing this is not to say that somehow that america and china are natural born enemies and must fight to the death or anything like that the issue is is that you have a government in china which is currently pursuing a revanchist foreign policy if you don't know what that word means it's just a really fancy way of saying that a country is pursuing a policy of getting its old territory back something which russia is obviously engaged in in ukraine engaged in a war of revanchism as you could say If you wanted to go to your next dinner party and sound exceptionally smart, you could say, oh, uh, Russia is currently involved in a war of revanchism and China itself is engaged in a revanchist foreign policy. And everyone will look at you and be like, the fuck invited this guy. In any case, because China is pursuing this foreign policy of getting its old territory back and that old territory in this circumstance is Taiwan effectively china has regained all of its territory except for taiwan and outer manchuria which is the area that russia owns right now which is a like current day Vladivostok, and you know that very far eastern port in the russian empire that used to be chinese territory which russia basically said give to us or we'll invade you in the middle of a civil war that china was fighting anyway they had to give up that territory that 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 is a story for another day And I think that that is an issue that China is happy to put aside for now and will pursue later. Right now, their big concern is Taiwan, because not only is it more strategically important to the Chinese currently, it also represents almost an ideological counterweight to them, because effectively, the Chinese Civil War is still ongoing, because Taiwan represents the remnants of the nationalist Chinese government, which lost the Chinese Civil War. So effectively, this government claims ownership over all of mainland China, just as mainland China maintains ownership over current-day Taiwan. Let's imagine some sort of scenario where China has a government that doesn't care about Taiwan, they don't want Taiwan, it's not on their radar, it's not important to them, and they have a better relationship with the United States, and they're not as worried about potentially being undercut or cut off from them. In those circumstances, no, war is definitely not likely. There's no reason to fight. But because of the issue that Taiwan represents for the Communist Party, essentially there has to be some sort of showdown and some sort of conclusion to this story at some point. So one of the ways that China is trying to counteract this position that they find themselves in and to move goods through the Belt and Road Initiative which is the Chinese initiative to recreate the Silk Road and move goods across Central Asia. They that. That's one big thing that they're trying to do to counteract the squeeze that they find themselves in. Another thing, and that's something we didn't really talk about in our China Screwed episode, are these little artificial islands that China is creating in the South China Sea. I got some pretty decent graphics and maps of some of these islands for you guys. As you can see, this is the South China Sea. Right now, China claims this sea in its entirety, which is not exactly a state of affairs. Malaysia, Vietnam, the Philippines, nor Japan are particularly happy with because even though in this particular area, Japan doesn't have any contested territory with the Chinese. However, moving up north and just north of Taiwan there, there are some more islands that are disputed between japan and china in any case there's a lot of these disputed territories and islands and areas that the chinese have basically said it's ours so we're going to go in there and we're going to dredge up these kind of really shallow reefs and create these artificial islands and this started as early as like 2012 2014 and now a decade later some of these islands are actually fully militarized and they have missiles and they have planes and this is something that in that video by the caspian report he talked about is that they are using these islands to try and effectively counteract any type of naval blockade that would try and blockade the straits of malucca they're trying to put fighters and anti-ship systems and anti-aircraft systems on these islands to deter anyone from potentially blockading that straight i think that while it is a deterrent i don't think it's going to be enough of a deterrent to stop for example the united states and its combined allies from doing something like that but i want to talk a little bit more about that when we examine what a theoretical war between these two powers would actually look like just to give you guys an idea of what some of these islands look like We've got right here, I found this when I was doing research for this episode, the Chinese Island Tracker, which looks at some of these islands over time and gives the information that we have over here. For example, here on the Spratly Islands they have a numerous amount of reefs. There's a couple of different island chains, but let me show you one here. The Curaton Reef, hit explore, will bring us to a couple of Images and we can see how this has developed over time. For example, here's March of 2014 Where we see nothing effectively here. It is in 2011 2014 and then up here in 2015 we can see the real development is actually starting And then 2016 you can see that things are shaping up and then at the end of 2016 you actually see real features starting to appear on this island and then over time now this picture is taken in may of 2020 you actually have the growing shit on this island i don't think this is one of the militarized ones they have here is definitely a militarized the fiery cross reef so we can explore that and you can see we've got a airstrip right here on this one Let's see if we can go back i want to see what it looks like way back In the day, okay. Here they have yeah images of the dredging itself, images of these ships actually putting the sand in and building these islands. To me, that's crazy. I just the amount of work and effort that they must have done to actually create these is insane. 2014, we can see yeah them doing the work, building it up, and now this looks like by 2016 it looks like. This airfield's completely operational. And what's the newest picture we got here? Here we go, 2020. Looks like, yeah, they've got an airstrip. And maybe even like a full military base here. Wouldn't be surprised if they have some missile systems and a radar, all that good shit. In any case, I'm not going to spend forever going over all this. If you guys are interested, I would recommend you just take some time to look through some of these artificial islands that they've created. Just because it's interesting and the the capabilities that they have on some of these. I'll just do a kind of slow roll. Like some of them, yeah, they look actually they would be like some of these look like, yeah, they're military installations, and other ones look like, oh, they're like a little like tourist town or resort type of thing. And some of them just exist, like Middle Island. (laughs) Oh, that first that said monkey island. I was thinking, like, goddamn, someone should just take this island, if it were named Monkey Island, and turn it into, like, a giant escape room and call it Escape from Monkey Island. So you can see that there's also a ton of these islands that they've developed. Here's another one that's militarized here, Woody Island. In any case, some of these, they haven't even developed yet. But regardless, China has basically moved in despite protests from other countries, taken over, and in some cases entirely created islands from scratch to protect power over the South China Sea. Anyway, the point of these islands is to show that despite protestations of other countries, China is willing to just essentially do what it wants, to do what it perceives as necessary for its own security, but also to show you where these islands are, what they look like, what their capabilities entail, because we're going to come back to them in just a little bit when we talk about what an actual war between these two countries might look like but before we jump into a theoretical conversation about a hot war i just want to talk a little bit about the politics of taiwan and why 2024 is so important why the general mentioned it in his memo as being pivotal to china itself because china will certainly be watching the election in taiwan so let's do a very brief overview of taiwanese politics obviously this is going to be just skimming the surface so bear with me so the important thing to remember here is that China has two major parties the DPP which is the Democratic Progressive Party they are effectively the pro-Taiwan party very pro-independence that is one of their solid planks next to them is the Kuomintang which is actually the remnants of the former nationalist government in China and they are actually now in reversal of their previous position a lot more conciliatory towards China and potentially moving towards some sort of reconciliation with the mainland is on their political agenda. As we can see in 2020 they got pretty decisively clobbered in the last election. 57 for the incumbent Zhang Wen and 39% for her challenger Hong Koyu, and like I said, pretty decisively defeated. But the thing about Taiwanese politics is that they do follow a similar trend and they follow a similar rule to American politics where the president can only actually serve two terms. So in 2016, the DPP crushed it again when Tsai wen ran for her first term. And then again, if we go to 2020, we can see she increased her vote slightly and demolished the opposition. However, in 2024, she can't run again. So we don't know who is going to run and what their platform is going to be. And of course, this leaves a lot of outcomes yet to be decided. It will definitely be something that China is watching and something I will personally be watching once 2024 rolls around to see what exactly is going to happen in Taiwan. In any case, it will be a pretty interesting political event and something that could shape the future politics in the region. So that could influence whether China decides to invade in 2025. And of course, we have the American election, which who the hell knows what will happen Unfortunately, it looks like things are on track for a Trump-Biden rematch, which nobody wants yet. Of course, this is what everybody will get. Simply because nobody wants it, that is what we will get. And given the aftermath of 2020, who the hell knows what could happen in 2024. I I, I don't feel comfortable making any predictions at all, besides the fact it's going to be a clusterfuck. Either way, though, I don't see any future U.S. president deciding to take a softer position on China, regardless of who gets elected. I see whatever U.S. politician gets into office defending Taiwan and guaranteeing their independence effectively. But it is plausible that the Chinese could, in a moment of political chaos, let's say you have another January 6th that is more effective and causes even more disruption within the U.S. government, And in a potential scenario where you have a grinding war in Ukraine entering its third year, you can have a China say, this is the opportunity that we have. This is the best opportunity we're going to get for a long time. Let's pull the trigger. And then just to reference why now, my personal belief is that there is a closing window on the Chinese demography, that they have maybe five to 10 years left in the tank. And then after that, their window to take Taiwan through military force will effectively have closed entirely for probably the rest of our lifetimes. So they are entering a now or never point when it comes to Taiwan very rapidly. And it is plausible that, you know, this now or never point comes and it ends up the Chinese decision is never. And they decide to not to let it go effectively. That could happen. Who knows? But my point here is, is that we are reaching a zero point when it comes to Taiwan and China is going to have to decide to use what the French would say, shit or get off the pot. So with that out of the way, let's end this episode by talking a little bit about what a potential war would actually look like because we are talking about something that in my opinion, would shape out very differently than what we're seeing in Ukraine. Obviously, Ukraine being a very large land-based war, we're talking about a stretch of territory between Russia and Ukraine that is massive. It's actually longer than the initial starting front for the Germans at Barbarossa, whereas a war in the Pacific is almost certainly going to be aerial warfare based naval systems and aerial warfare and not so much on land-based tanks and armies clashing in trenches and that sort of thing but there will of course be some sort of land-based conflict but on a much smaller scale because one thing i want to get out of the way right now before we dive into this conversation is that there's realistically in terms of actually invading and taking over the country There's no way either country could do that to one another. China simply doesn't have the logistical capacity to ever invade America, to actually sustain an invasion force in America. They simply don't have the Navy to do that. I don't think they could ever conceivably have the Navy to do that. Who knows? But right now and for the foreseeable future, China doesn't have anywhere near that capability. The United States, on the other hand, well... Probably they could invade and take over China. I don't think that the American people have the will or want to engage in such warfare because it would almost certainly be incredibly costly, far more costly than any type of conflict that the Americans have engaged in their history. And I just don't see that the American people have the want for that. This is, of course, barring some sort of scenario where China does like a Pearl Harbor type of tactic against the United States and surprise attacks their territory. In that case, you have all bets are off scenario and America is going to invade and invade and invade until it's over. So the reason I bring up these artificial islands is because this is where any type of initial conflict is going to break off. We can talk about different scenarios about how this war could start. Are we talking about a scenario where China has decided they're going to invade Taiwan and has just launched their invasion force And dead of night? Is that what's happening? If that's the case, then obviously the major theater and the major fighting is going to be in and around Taiwan. Or are we talking some sort of, again, surprise attack? Maybe the Chinese launch a missile at the American garrison in Guam, and that starts the war. Maybe it just happens through pure escalation. China decides that they're going to blockade Taiwan. America decides they're going to intervene, and diplomacy fails, and then things escalate into an actual hot war. Who knows? Who knows how this scenario could play out, but regardless the initial fighting, I think, and the initial major focus for the Americans and, again, the Chinese themselves is going to be these artificial islands. I foresee, given American history and how the Americans have conducted their forces in the past, they're going to be very reluctant to try and blockade the Straits or disrupt Chinese shipping while their ships are in danger of being attacked by chinese missiles or chinese airplanes unfortunately for china they can still really disrupt that flow of energy into the country from further back than the straits of malacca if they wanted to india will almost certainly be supporting the united states if not outright hostile to china in this foreseeable conflict they could disrupt chinese shipping with american support with australian support could also disrupt chinese shipping before it even gets to Singapore. But I don't think that the Americans are actually going to blockade it unless they're able to neutralize those islands. So I moved in here trying to get a bit of a closer view, but what I see initially, unless you have some sort of surprise attack on Taiwan or something like that, is that the first fighting is going to be around these artificial islands. And for these artificial islands have, I know this is probably not gonna be the exact areas here, but you have these artificial islands in the South China Sea. And initially I see something happening. You have Wake Island type of scenario where instead of the Japanese invading these American islands, it's American Marines trying to land and take these islands as quickly as they can before China can get reinforcements. Although if China is the one who is the initiator of this war, it is theoretically possible that they would have these islands as well garrisoned as they possibly could. That being said, I envision that it would be the American and American allies' first goal to take or at least neutralize these islands. They could potentially bombard them into oblivion if they wanted to and make them completely unusable, and if, for whatever reason, their initial operation to take these islands failed, that's what they would do, although I would think that they would like to try and use them as their own base of operations should this actually become a real war. So, again, the very first thing you're going to see, I think, is the Americans trying to take these islands. I don't know if it's going to be like a special forces helicopter landing or something, or they're gonna land and invade from the Philippines, but some way, this is where they're going to hit first. For China itself, their main goal is going to be defending those islands, ensuring they still have somewhat of a deterrent against the Americans, but their main goal is going to be Taiwan, especially if this war is directly for Taiwan. It starts off with China invading Taiwan. Taiwan is immediately going to become an American ally and over time American forces would build up in Taiwan you'd have of course their infantry defending the beaches you'd have their artillery potentially bombarding the coastline you'd have their planes launching missions from their airports it would be a major headache for the Chinese so they have to find a way to take this island as fast as they could theoretically do it honestly I I don't know how they would do it like if i put myself in the position of a chinese general i'm trying to war game an invasion of taiwan in the next two to three years how would i do this the thing about trying to just do a naval invasion is that everyone's going to be able to see that american spy satellites are so sophisticated at this point that they're going to see a military buildup coming a mile away and once a military buildup is perceived and you can see, oh man, they've got all these landing ships building up on the port of Guangzhou. I wonder why they might be doing that. Everyone's going to be on high alert. Obviously, Taiwan is going to be on high alert. So I don't think that there's any way you can truly do a sneak attack in the modern age. So that would be obviously option one. Option two would be, and I've alluded to this before, some sort of embargo scenario where mainland China embargoes Taiwan. They find a reason, maybe they fabricate. Taiwan has some sort of super powerful weapon that they're getting traded from the United States, and we're extremely worried about it. So we're gonna blockade Taiwan to make sure that they aren't getting the parts that they need to build this weapon until we can reach some sort of diplomatic solution over it. You have embargo scenario where Chinese ships are now actively out in the water and you have some sort of cover for why you would have military forces moving around and then at that point you use the embargo to escalate to an actual conflict an actual hot war and at that you still couldn't truly cover your tracks because people could see oh when all of a sudden all these troops are going to these ships that are blockading taiwan i wonder what that could indicate But from there, if you were actually China and you were in a position that you were blockading Taiwan, you would have much more favorable positions to launch your invasion from and hopefully gain that initial element of surprise for a longer period of time. So there's effectively three ways that this could go for China. There's the best case scenario, which is they take the island relatively quickly. I see this is a low probability of happening, but theoretically that it could happen. They take the island quickly and are able to establish themselves without too much issue. And if that theoretically happens, that's the best case scenario for the Chinese. There could even be a sort of lingering time where the United States and its allies are deciding do they want to go to a full-scale war over this if the island is taken quickly so there's a possibility that they could gain everything they want and avoid an outright war although that is a pretty low possibility in my opinion the next possibility is that they make the landings obviously but they're not able to take the whole island they just have a little bit of a foothold on the island and Effectively, this is a maybe not the worst case scenario, but it could be really, really bad for the Chinese because now you're having long protracted fighting on this island. You've got to supply your forces. It's going to be brutal. It's going to be deadly. It's going to be costly. And then you have a much greater possibility of the United States or other countries jumping in and not just sending weapons and materials and equipment, but potentially boots on the ground. If the situation becomes dire enough and can escalate into a hot war directly with American troops fighting Chinese troops in Taiwan trying to wrestle control of the island, that would be probably for everybody involved. Total, total disaster. In that case, we're looking at massive devastation for everyone. Hundreds of thousands of casualties on all sides, potentially. So there's that scenario where you have the Chinese getting a foothold on the island, Not able to take it. This I'd say is probably the most likely scenario if something were to actually happen. And in that case, you have China having to again to supply Taiwan overseas, which is vulnerable in and of itself. And then you have a long, protracted war, probably of attrition. Let's clear this for a second. Zoom in on the geography of Taiwan, and what we can see: the island, much is lower is flatter, has the majority of the population, and then in the center you have a sort of large mountain range dominating an island, and then you have less populated cities and areas. But Moving in, we can see like a lot of the potential areas for landing are, there's, there's not very many. They're pretty vulnerable, so it would be tough. But anyway, they are able to land here, take small sections of the island, and then move out. That, to me, again, is probably the most plausible scenario. And then we have scenario three, where effectively the Chinese aren't able to gain any kind of foothold. The operation is a complete disaster. They are forced back into the sea. And then there's a period where this could turn really bad or potentially not so bad. Because I would say that there is a possibility that the Chinese government is know, oh, what, we rolled the dice and we really sucked it up. So maybe we'll just cut our losses and try and gain some sort of peace deal. We'll give up on Taiwan, maybe effectively relinquish all territorial claims to it. There's a possibility something like that happens in a disaster scenario for China. But the other possibility is that they continue to fight on and they continue to soldier on and continue to try and invade Taiwan and continue the military operation. And at that point, then you start to probably have the United States and other powers come in. Assuming if the operation is a failure, you're going to have, again, other powers, probably trying to broker some sort of peace or mediate a peace deal between the countries. But if that fails, if diplomacy fails and it escalates into some kind of full-scale war, At that point, that's probably the best case scenario for the Americans in terms of being able to blockade the Chinese. You have complete control of Taiwan, who is an ally. From there, you can take the artificial islands away from China. From there, you can blockade the streets of Malacca. You can blockade that, and then you can try and strangle the Chinese economy into submission. One of the things that I didn't talk about in the last episode when we were talking about the war in Ukraine, and and I also neglected to mention this in our episode about why I think a Chinese collapse is coming, that is that for all Russia's weaknesses in comparison to China, they have one major advantage, which is that they are far more self-sufficient than the Chinese are. They have access to raw materials and energy and supplies that China just doesn't have. So if we were to administer the same kind of sanctions that we're applying to Russia to China, the country would be in very serious trouble, to say the least. So anyway, let's say we have that scenario where the Americans have taken these artificial islands. So let's say we have the scenario where America has taken the artificial islands and they control the South China Sea. Say all of this is now american controlled effectively and china is refusing to back down even though they're being blockaded they're refusing to give up the fight they say we're going to fight on we're going to fight to the bitter end this is the point where you would actually see maybe some sort of landing on the chinese mainland i think hong kong would be a prime place in some sort of hot war that the americans would land in because they have the potential of being friendlier to a Western power as they had more leniency and autonomy from mainland China for many, many years. That is the point where I think you may see actual landings. Hong Kong, the Americans potentially land and just take over the city. I don't think they have the capability, willpower, and it's not even necessary for them to push out into the actual country. I don't think America needs to do that. They basically, if they want to completely strangle China into submission, they just effectively need to take these key ports, Hong Kong being a good one, but the major one would be Shanghai. But that is, I can't imagine a 21st century battle over Shanghai between America and China. That's just mind-boggling to think about what that would actually look like in a real-life scenario, in a real-life possibility, but I think that effectively if you take Shanghai from the Chinese that's their most economically prosperous city, their largest port, it would be very difficult for the Chinese to really do anything. And you could have kind of a scenario where it's almost like a replica of what it was like for the Chinese during the century of humiliation where you have, yes, there's an effective government in control of large swaths of China, but they're so weak that a lot of these important coastal cities are actually controlled by outside powers. And that is where the majority of the economic activity in China happens, is in these major coastal cities. I was asked in the comments in my episode about China what I think would happen. Would there be a rebellion in China? And what would that look like if there was an actual collapse? And I think there would be a rebellion. And in this case, we're talking about a collapse that would be forced through military force by cutting off the Chinese economy's access to the raw materials it needs to function. So, the hope is that you'd force the Chinese government to surrender, or the government would collapse in on itself, because it'd be unable to function anymore. Anyway, all I'm saying is that this is a scenario where a Chinese collapse is brought on by military force. If this doesn't happen, in my opinion, within the next 5 to 10 years, we will see a Chinese collapse brought on by economic forces. And what that would look like is that yes, you would have rebellions, but they wouldn't be like grab your grab your musket off the mantle, <laughs> Chinese peasants. We're going, <laughs> we're forming a minutemen, and we're going to we're we're going to fight for our territory. It's not going to be like that. What's going to happen is effectively that you are going to have a moment where a lot of the regional bureaucrats in these areas outside of Beijing are going to get their marching orders from Beijing and then toss them in the trash and effectively ignore the orders from Beijing. And whenever they ask for reports, they're just gonna fabricate them and tell them that everything is absolutely fine. There's no issues here. So while you'll end up having, it'll be like a quiet rebellion where the government in Beijing doesn't have a realistic picture of what's happening on the ground because everything is being fabricated and falsified and the orders that they're giving to their regional bureaucrats are effectively impossible to achieve. So there'll be this period where everybody's living in a fantasy land and they think that things are going to be fine the way they are, but eventually that kind of status quo can't last forever. Eventually, reality will come crashing in and someone will lose their head. There'll probably be a moment where the central government is trying to more forcefully manage their regional bureaucrats and regional territories and there'll be a moment where that regional bureaucrat has a choice where they either will enforce these ridiculous orders from Beijing or say, no, I'm going autonomous, I'm not listening to you. I'm disobeying your orders. And at that point, you do have effectively a rebellion, but it's not going to be, let's march to Beijing. It's going to be, we're now going to administer our own affairs much more closely and not really listen to the central government. So anyway, that's the end, I think, of this presentation to answer the real question of this episode, to wrap things up. For now, is a war with China inevitable? I am actually going to agree with the general a little bit more than the Caspian Report. I think that yes, it's incredibly likely between the United States and China. We talked a little bit about the spy balloons, but that's just a herald of things to come. A proverbial storm cloud, if you will. And while I don't think that the Chinese will necessarily attack as early as 2025. I do think that it, they could attack in that time frame. They will certainly be looking at world events up until that point before they make that decision. It's not an inevitability, but it is a possibility. And it's not an inevitability that China and America will go to war. I do think that it is an inevitability that communist China and America will go to war unless the communist Chinese government collapses in some sort of fashion. Like I was thinking of an alternate history scenario where China and Taiwan have reversed places where the nationalist Chinese are in control of mainland China and the communist Chinese are in control of Taiwan. At that point, I think Taiwan would be in our timeline like a North Korea, almost like an island North Korea type of thing. Wouldn't even be surprised if they had, instead of semiconductors, they had nuclear weapons like North Korea. But mainland China would probably be even more prosperous than they are now. That depends if the nationalist government could keep things together. It's a surprisingly difficult prospect, actually, to keep things together in China. Who knew? But I think that there is definitely a strong possibility that the Chinese would be surpassing the Americans. In terms of economic prowess at that point. And that would definitely scare the Americans, just like it's scaring them now. You look at the way people would talk about imperial power projection back in the British times, right? It's all about the British Navy. I feel like the Americans almost use their economy in the same way that the British use their Navy to maintain their imperial superstructure. So let's just do some quick math here. Obviously, this is complete speculation not one-to-one but let's do a comparison that let's just say that in this timeline we've created that the gdp per capita of the average taiwanese person is now the gdp per capita of the average chinese person we can see here in 2021 comparing the two countries taiwan had thirty three thousand dollars per person and again this is gdp per capita so this gdp per person and in comparison China had $12,500 per person, so almost three times as much. Not quite, just under three times as much, but to keep it easy, we'll just use round numbers. So, what is the Chinese GDP right now? Right now, it is 17, and I'll just round up again. to Actually, I'll just do $18 trillion, just to make it easy. $18 trillion, woohoo. I, I guess I could just do the 18 times, 3 that equals $54 trillion, which is almost twice the current GDP of the United States. So in theory, that if the nationalist Chinese had maintained control of China, they would have an economy that is twice the GDP of the United States. I think that would make America extremely worried. I think that they would want to cut them down to size at that point. So. Maybe it wouldn't happen, who knows, This again, this is just pure speculation, but I don't think that America would want an economic power threatening their hegemony over the world. In any case, I don't think that war is necessarily inevitable, but I do think it's extremely likely. And unfortunately, I think it's likely to happen sooner rather than later. Because right now, the Chinese are facing a closing window of opportunity. So, depending on what happens in these next couple of years, we are going to see if China is going to jump through that window of opportunity before it closes, or are they just going to let it close on themselves? Who knows? I think it's much more likely that they are going to try and do something before that happens. So, I thought I was going to end this episode, but we actually have some news for the day. It looks like the Battle of Bakhmut is finally drawing to a close. The writing, unfortunately, has been on the wall for quite some time. However, again, every day that the Ukrainians have held out here has been a win, in my opinion, because this was not expected to be such a difficult battle for the Russians. That being said, it does look like we have some pretty bad news coming out of Bakhmut right now. The main thing here today, as I'm actually recording this on the day, on on Friday, the day you guys are going to see this video, this from six hours ago. The big thing here is that the Ukrainians have blown up a railway bridge inside Bakbud. This is a bridge which connects the eastern and western sections of the city because there is a river which runs through it, which bisects it. So they've blown up this bridge, which is a pretty sizable indication that they intend to withdraw from that area. At the very least, they are withdrawing from eastern Bakhmut, and it is probably likely that they are going to withdraw from the city in its entirety. The reason you'd obviously destroy this bridge is to cover your retreat, because you want to slow the Russians down and prevent them from pursuing your forces. So things are looking pretty dire here. That being said, we still don't know for sure what exactly is going on. I'm going to see if there's any big bullet points here that I want to share with you guys. So what do we have? We go to the summary of the day so far. The situation in the embattled city of Bakhmut appears to be extremely precarious. Amid evidence Ukraine was preparing extensive new defensive operations, including in the nearby city of Krematorsk. Video posted online showed the blowing up of the railway bridge, which we just talked about over the Batmutka River in the east of the city, while other footage is purported to show damage to a small railway bridge. They don't have anything, again, on this. So one of the things I like to do for the show is I like to give news stories a little bit of time to breathe before I talk about them so I can get as much of the details. One of the things I have been hearing is that there are Ukrainians withdrawing from the city actively. I haven't been able to really substantiate those reports, So take them for what they are right now. But the big key thing is the destruction of that bridge, which is again, that they don't intend to defend that side of the city. But right now, as I'm talking, as I'm recording this, unfortunately, the signs don't look that good. So let us end this depressing segment on a feel good story or feel good segment. Today, we're gonna talk a little bit about robotics and how they're augmenting humans and potentially improving our lives. What we're going to be talking about today, this is an exoskeleton for your ankle, which this is developed by, I believe it's the Georgia Institute of Technology or Research Institute or something like that. Georgia Tech College of Engineering. Okay, good enough. So in any case, this is from the Georgia Tech College of Engineering. What they are doing here is they are putting on this ankle exoskeleton onto this woman. They're demonstrating it. What it does effectively is that it can read the forces around it and respond faster than human reflexes increasing people's bounce so it allows them to regain their bounce quicker and faster and prevent them from falling over so let's just watch this little video here all right guys hey i'm trying to get away from the text Okay, so fun little video shows off what it's all about. And this may not seem like something crazy. It says it only increases maybe 9% balance wise, but here's the thing, right? This is just, again, in its early stages, we've seen a couple things like this. This is definitely in terms of the most streamlined and comfortable looking device. This is the best I've seen. It seems like it's a lot smaller and a lot sleeker, but usually this isn't for guys and gals like you and me, right, that are, relatively fit and able and don't need to worry about bounce. These are people who may have mobility issues, whether it's because they're elderly or injured or something like that, or you have someone who's working in an area that has a lot of movement. Maybe this is a construction area and the scaffolding or something is not quite stable, not quite bounce. Something like this could obviously help somebody bounce on these precarious situations and prevent them from falling to their death. The main use of something like this, I see, is for elderly people to help prevent them from falling over because as we grow older, our sense of balance tends to diminish. We have increased chance of falling over. And because we're older, we have increased chance of sustaining injuries from falling over. And I honestly think by the time I'm an old fart and most of you guys are up there with me, we're probably gonna be like exosuited up. We're gonna be like exosuit grandpas, being able to at least, I'm hoping comfortably, navigate the world in a way that seniors just aren't able to do today. I'm also hoping that maybe technology will be able to transfer my consciousness into a robot or something like that. That would be the best, but I I don't know if that's gonna happen in my lifetime. Just a fun little video for you guys to show the evolution of technology of exoskeletons they're getting smaller, they're getting faster, they're getting better, and before you know it, I think that they're going to become pretty commonplace. So with that, that's going to bring us to the end of our show. Don't really have much more to go into for you guys. <laughs> Already end up going longer than I thought I would. I always think that, oh, this is going to be a shorter episode. Mm-hmm. Not this time. I mean, in any case, that's all I got for now. So this has been De comrade. signing off for now. And I'll see you guys next time.